0: Hey everybody. Welcome to episode 316 of the podcast. So glad you're here today. We are hearing from a powerhouse of a mom. Lisa Qualls is my guest. She's a mom of 12. Uh Uh-huh. One, two, 12 through birth and adoption and the co-host of the Adoption Connection podcast. She's co-written a book called The Connected Parent with the late renowned child psychologist, Dr. Karen Purvis. And it really focuses on her decades of renowned clinical research about helping children coming from hard places. So even if this is not your story or your children's story, all kids go through different challenges and this research and what we're talking about today will really help you to address those traumatic events that your children might have experienced. We all have trauma in our past, whether it be big or small, intentional or not we all have that and so helping kids to emerge from their hard circumstances or hard challenges helping them through and showing them a safe and love-filled way that is the goal and that is what Lisa is going to share with us today she is just such a fantastic individual doing so so much good in the world and I cannot wait for you to hear from Lisa today so let's get to my conversation with Lisa Qualls All right, I'm so excited to be chatting with Lisa Qualls today. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me today. It's my pleasure. Where am I speaking to you from today? I live in Moscow, Idaho, which is in beautiful North Idaho. You know what? I have never been to Idaho, but it seems like a lot of people are going up there to kind of get away from the craziness of what's going on right now in the more rural parts for camping and beautiful lake life and everything. And I want to get up there so bad as soon as it's safe. Well, it is really beautiful. North Idaho, we have
1: lots of lakes and there just aren't a lot of people, which is sort of lovely. That is Well, you populate your town then, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot. We also have a university here, so that
0: keeps our town filled up. Okay. That does help. That does help. Okay. Tell mm-hmm. tell the listeners why I'm joking that, that your family populates the town. Tell me about your family composition, Lisa. Well, I have a large family, um, eight children by birth and
1: four by adoption from Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And we also had a foster, a teen foster daughter for two and a half years. So yes, we are a large family in a smallish town.
0: I love that so much. Is that what you pictured your family would look like? Like when you were a little girl, did you draw stick figures of all 12 kids you'd someday have? Or what did you think your family would look like? (laughs) Uh, no I
1: never quite imagined this I will say I was drawn to big families I was one of three girls or am one of three girls but our younger sister was 10 years younger so for most of my a lot of my growing up it was just me and my sister and I was always kind of drawn to the big families in town that there were lots of kids and there was noise and food and a mom and I, I don't know it just did appeal to me um And I thought maybe I'd want to have a big family, but at the time when Russ and I were graduating from college, I thought, okay, let's have a couple of kids and we'll co kind of both of us will have a career and both of us will parent. I had this idea that it was going to be quite different than what it actually is.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Whenever I've seen people with large families, it just always seems like they have built-in friends. And then when they go on vacation they have like a whole crew and then you can buddy off with of different ones and everything. And, and I'm one of three children as well. And while I think three is a great number and I have three right now and I'm actually expecting my fourth. Um, yeah, it just different strokes for different folks, but it always seemed like a lot of fun <laughs> to have a large family. It can be, it can be, it can also be complicated,
1: lots of personalities and lots of needs. And I have an age range of 20 years, oh, so nice. uh it can, it's, it's just a really different way of raising a family for sure. So, you know, most of my children right now are teens. Well, they're all teens or young adults now. I, wow. I hadn't quite thought about that until I said it, but my youngest is 13 and my oldest is 33. So, you know, I've got kids who are
0: professionals and I've got a middle schooler. So the whole range there. Right. And how, as they were growing up and you have kids in literally every season of life and there's demands that are very, very different in different seasons. So you have everything from nap schedules to, you know, band practice at night and then college applications. Like how did you approach meeting the needs of all these kids in their different seasons, simply like logistically? Mm. Well, before we adopted, I feel like we had a pretty good
1: rhythm. You know, we were... I was homeschooling. I homeschooled in various capacities for 23 years. So, um, I was homeschooling our kids, and it was very, very demanding. With at that point, we had seven children at home, and I felt stretched pretty thin. But we were, you know, a very—I think we were a well-connected family. We were a close family, and the older kids certainly helped with the younger kids a lot which made a difference but even still you know I remember trying to help my daughter prepare like for the SATs at the same time that I had a preschooler you know so it was a big stretch for sure but we I had to have a lot of structure in our home a lot of uh Not so much schedules, but we had a lot of routines and things to keep us on
0: track so we could actually have a functional, happy family. Yeah. And I like that distinction between routines and schedules. What does that difference look like in your home? And can you tell me about some of like the basic ones that really kind of helped your family to run, especially when more kids were at home?
1: Yes. Okay. So for me, I do make a big distinction between routines and schedules. And I teach about this because I think what happens to us as moms when we create a schedule is we break everything into time blocks. And I fully respect people who want to do that. But what I found was most of the time by about 8.30 in the morning, we were behind. You know, like the the schedule, like, oh, we were supposed to do this at 6.30 and this at 7 and this at 7.30. And Life happens, and with a lot of children, or even just with a couple of children, you know, there are needs and things that we can't always predict. So by establishing routines, we basically, for me, I would create more of a list like this is going to happen first, this is going to happen second, this is going to happen third, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I was homeschooling, we would start our day at about the same time every day, And we'd start with breakfast and then everybody would do a short chore and then we would start our school day. And back in those days, I would try to knock out the hardest subjects first. I would have my older kids always get into their math and things like that first. So while their brains had a little more energy and then, you know, we'd always break for lunchtime and then we always had what we called quiet hour for everybody, no matter the age. And I would separate all the kids. And of course, when I had a lot, One child might be sleeping on the stair landing. Mm -hmm. I might have someone in the laundry room, but I just spread everybody out so that everybody would have a little time alone and I would get a break for one hour, one beautiful hour. (laughs) So, and then after that, you know, there was, there were all kinds of different activities and things, but we, we anchored our day. I would say with, uh, starting, you know, with a morning time of chores and breakfast, quiet hour, and then again, dinner time when my husband would come home from work. Those were sort of our main anchors in our day. And we've always been an early-to-bed family, so that was always important, too. But again, we weren't so much hung up on exact times. Yeah.
0: I love that so much, and, and oftentimes we think of schedules just to help mom function, but really kids do so much better when they know what to expect. We were at the beach the other yes. day, and there was a little boy who was absolutely just melting down and having a tantrum, and I, you know, we've all been there. We've all been mm-hmm. there. We've had our tantrum in kids, but just in this instance, as I was listening to the interaction between the mom and this four-year-old, potentially four-year-old, I was thinking, this child has no idea how to be successful in this situation. She's like <laughs> setting really unrealistic expectations and and not being totally clear on what she wants. And she just wants him to calm down, but he doesn't know like what to do next. And so it really kind of reiterated to me, you know, more than judging that mom, that was not my goal. But it's like, wow, I can really see the value in being very clear that our kids need to know how to be successful. And then we can when when they know that, then we can hold them to those higher expectations. But until we teach them, train them, support them in meeting those expectations, really it's on us if they don't meet them. Right. And I think we
1: have to be so aware to set them up for success. Yes. We have to meet the needs of their bodies yes. for this food, hungry, hydration, yes. <laughs> sleep, you know, and it's so easy. I think as a mom, like, you're out on an outing like that and things are going really great and you don't really want it to end because you know the transition mm-hmm. of loading up the children, packing up, getting to the car, getting everybody buckled in is going to be hard. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to just keep enjoying and enjoying as long as we can and then we've gone too far. Yes. <laughs> and then the kids are melting down and we still have to do all those hard things to make the transition home
0: and that is no good. Right. Oh, that is such a good point. You do tend mm-hmm. to take advantage and it's like when you know, maybe the quiet time in the afternoon for your hour, you're like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. just 15 more minutes. Maybe just 15 more minutes. I don't know. Maybe you never did this, Lisa. But I tend to, oh, like, yes. fudge it, fudge it, fudge it a little bit longer, like, take advantage. But then if it, if it, you know, sets everybody else kind of in a tailspin of, like, you know, they've been on screens too long or they, you know, something actually was going on. They're making a bigger mess. And then I freak out because it's a big mess or whatever it is. You know, it's like, oh, that was not worth it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I I know so well. We were just at the lake this weekend and we took a number of teenage boys with us, all young middle school age teens. And everybody was having a great time, but we knew it would be better to leave while everybody was having yes. a great time. Yes. And so we did. We called them up from the beach and that was hard to do, you know, because we were relaxed and but we also knew we had a bit of a drive home and all those things. And these aren't even toddlers. These yes. guys are not going to melt down on me, but We got back to the cabin and we said, everybody needs to eat a snack and then we're getting in the car, you know, because we knew that we had to leave while things were good.
0: Yes. Oh, that is such a good reminder. And especially as we're going into this school year, that's going to look a lot different for for most Mm -hmm. people around the world, essentially, but especially in our country. It's so important to have those routines and to set expectations and to help our kids be successful, set them up for success. And I learned something from... Uh, My friend who has a program called Routine and Things, and she said, you know, you never want to go do something miserable or leave something fun to go do something miserable, right? And so by, by starting with the hard thing, like you said, starting with the hard subject, if you're homeschooling or whatever, and then have something to look forward to, then that's a much better transition. Asking your kids to get off video games so they can go do their schoolwork. Eh, like you're, you're right. not that's the exact opposite of what we're talking about right even though it might feel easier in the moment to be like oh yeah yeah, let mom get ready you go do what you want and then we'll get school started right when I think it's time to get school started mm-hmm. yes that yeah. is such a good point I mean mm-hmm. I do that
1: for myself when yeah. I start my work day I try to do the hardest thing first yeah. because otherwise it's going to hang over me and if I get it done then I I have right there yes. at the very beginning of my day yeah. and then I can look forward to other things as the day goes on so yeah. I think that's very true for our children too and I also think in terms of schooling you know so many of us are going to be schooling at home you know different children have energy at different times a day hmm. and like my husband and I he is more naturally a night owl and I'm a morning person all the way now he's kind of trained himself to be a morning person but some of my kids were early people. They could get up. They could tackle the math. And overall, that's the way I would do it. But I do have like one child who was definitely more of an afternoon, slower to wake up kid. And so when he was old enough to manage his schedule better, he could s- sort of lay out his school day differently. But mm-hmm. as young kids, we tackled all the hard stuff first.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that. I was reading a blog post that you wrote um, when you were talking about schooling your children at home years ago. Um, this is just when you had your, your first eight, right? And yes. uh, and you said it was so hard. It was so tiring, but you knew you were doing the right thing. And I just loved that distinction because sometimes it feels like when we're when we're facing challenges and our kids are pushing back and everything, it feels like the wrong thing. Like that's kind of where our brain goes to. Like if it's not easy or not fun, we're not doing it right. And I know that's not true, but sometimes that's the way it feels. So how did you... Where did that confirmation come from that you were doing the right thing? What does it feel like? What does it look like? And then how can our listeners tune into that feeling and find that for themselves of, of really owning their calling, really? Well, that's a really great question, actually. I think for me,
1: I felt that the relationships we were building through homeschooling were so important that even when it felt very difficult. It was worth it to me. And my husband, you know, supported me in that. And it really did work very, very well until we added a lot of new children to our family in a short amount of time. But I had peace that it was it was best. And I've asked my older kids if they thought it was worth it. And they have said yes, they Mm. definitely think it was worth it. And I'm I have no regrets, but it was hard work.
0: Yeah. Did they act like it was worth it at the time? Like, really? Like, what did they act like? Because like hindsight is twenty twenty. Well, they you know. had a lot of friends who were homeschooled, okay. so I don't think they felt
1: particularly different. Okay. Um, when they got a little older, especially um, – not my oldest, oldest kids, but maybe the middle. We started interacting with the schools more because in Idaho, the schools are very, at least where we live, the schools are very flexible toward homeschoolers. Yeah. So my kids started playing some sports, um, playing in the orchestra, And eventually, we started doing things like my high schoolers would take their math and science and foreign language at the high school. Mm -hmm. You know, just my oldest, probably three, or my, no, not my oldest, my oldest were fully homeschooled, but sort of in the middle there, um, they did a mixture. And I think sometimes they would have liked to have gone full time, but overall, it was it was really a good decision for us, but
0: that did change later after we adopted. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. And you really do have to kind of see how things are going, right? And see is this still working for us? Is this still working for you know individual children? And and I think as much pushback and as much stress as we're having over these changes changes in schooling right now, I think it is. And we think of virtual learning and distance learning and homeschooling as not ideal, but really. When we think about the public school system, I hate to break it to you. I was a former elementary school teacher, but for anybody listening that thinks just the public school setting is, you know, the perfect fit for all students, I don't think anybody actually thinks that if they think about it, but we assume that it's good enough. Right, But it's not meeting your children's individual needs most of the time. It is impossible for me as a teacher, no matter how hard I work, to differentiate learning for 30 students in a classroom. And so even though the circumstances we're in are definitely not ideal and we might feel thrown into it and ill-equipped, it's going to be okay and it's certainly not going to be any worse than your kid being one of 30 as they're trying to, you know, have their needs met and learn things that are hard for them and and overcome learning disabilities potentially or, or social issues, whatever it is, right? And so we have to kind of realize and acknowledge, okay, yeah, this is different, but it doesn't mean it's not ideal. It's just different. And if we can accept that, we'll probably have a better experience. Do you think so?
1: Well, I think this is a very unique opportunity for us to draw closer as families and yeah. um, And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But I think what we're going to have to do as parents, and and I'm speaking to myself here now because my children have been in school now for five years. I've had five years of not homeschooling until last Mm. spring. And um, I am reminding myself that relationships are more important than academics and this is an opportunity for me to build stronger connections with my boys in particular I have two boys still in you know and uh, one will be an eighth grader and one a ninth grader and even though this wasn't the opportunity I was looking for yeah. it has been given to me yes, and yes, so yes. I am praying a lot and thinking a lot about how to make this a time of blessing for for all of us, even though we're going to have some unique hurdles uh, because of my kids' needs. But it's a, if you've ever read, have you read Hold On to Your Kids? No, that book? I haven't. Oh, I would recommend that book to you yeah, and to hey. your listeners. It's really a, a lovely book, and it's, it's really about drawing our children close and building strong attachment with our children. And it's not adoption-focused at all. And it was actually written quite a long time ago, too. I can't remember when, but I've, I've read it. I've read it twice, I think, and my husband has listened to it. And it's about reestablishing those deep connections with our children. And, you know, the Lord is placing this opportunity in front of us, even if we weren't expecting it. So I am praying and thinking hard about how to use it for good for my whole
0: family. I love that so much, Lisa. And it really is an opportunity to build these relationships in a way that, really no other time, at least in my parenting life that I've had, like things are mm-hmm. just—we're we're forced into this opportunity and, you know, we don't get to choose this one, but, but it can be really beautiful and powerful. And, and you're so right. Like I have my oldest is already kind of pushing back against this format and doesn't like hearing, you know, his to do's from me. He'd rather hear it from a teacher, you know, mm-hmm. and you're right. Like, this year may not just be about checking the boxes for his education, but you know what? And maybe just have that conversation with him. Like, what do you want to, how do you want to grow together during this time? And, Mm -hmm. and how can, how can we do that? And how can we spend time together? And quality time is a big thing for him. So maybe if he knows he can look forward to, you know, half an hour with mom in the afternoon where it's just us two, that will help motivate him to get through the schoolwork to get to that. Yeah.
1: that's interesting. Right. I mean, that's a that. really good, proactive way to look at it. And, yeah. you know, because my boys are older, eighth and ninth grade, yeah. this is an opportunity for me to ask them, what do you want this school year to look like? Yeah. And we just had the really sad news that our entire fall sports season is canceled. And my boys yeah. are athletes and sports are very, very important to them. And so now I need to really be thinking about, okay, So, how do I meet their needs? Are we going to need to create a gym in our garage for them? Are we, you know, how, what can I do as a parent? How can I be flexible in my thinking? Because what's so easy to do for me, and I think for a lot of moms, is our brains, we start getting into a little bit of fear like, oh my goodness, first of all, I have to homeschool. I don't know how to homeschool. I don't want to homeschool. I have my life. And now I have to do this. Oh, and now sports are canceled. You know, like we can get our heads just in a really bad place. And I think it's important for us as the moms to be the calm presence and to take care of ourselves enough that we can do that so that we can stay regulated and calm, because this is so much change for our children. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're talking about preteens and teens who are Mm -hmm. used to having time with their friends and this, there's a lot of loss and fear for them. And I think we've got to be the calm presence and the secure base that they can come to.
0: That is so good. And if you can come back to that all the time, if you can realize their outbursts or their meltdown or their pushing back of not wanting to do school is probably rooted in some of that fear and that sadness and that loss and even grieving, right? If we can, yes. if we can acknowledge it in that frame, we can have a lot more sympathy for them and understanding of how to support them.
1: Yeah, right. That exactly. So, so exactly. So but we have, we, I think we have to do our own processing of our own grief. Like yes. I work from home and I know you do yes. too, you know, but I work from home and I'm thinking, wow, how do I rearrange my work? What do yeah. I let go of? What do I restructure? to actually be realistic for this school year, because honestly, I can't continue working the way I have the last five years and really support my kids in their education. So I have to make changes. And I know that's true for almost all of us.
0: We all, well, everybody, we're all having to make changes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And one more thought that I had that popped to my head is, I mean, as much as we're focusing on getting our kids Education all lined up and the zoom calls and all the materials and we want our kids to learn and have a successful school year we want ourselves to take advantage of this learning opportunity too and we can come out of this much more educated and and um and better and and you know we can we can graduate at the end of this year too from from a year well done and so if we can Really not only look at this in terms of what learning is going to happen for our kids this year, but what learning is going to happen for us this year and prioritize that um, and view it like that. I think we can be a little more accepting of I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to be better. I'm ready to, to, to move forward and grow from this. I really am. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We can view it as an opportunity or we can view it as a burden, you know,
0: and I think we'd be a lot better off if we see it as an opportunity. For sure. It's just a shift in thinking. It's not a shift in anything else. I love that. Well, speaking of, you know, having things go one way and you think you have it figured out and then you have a new opportunity cross your path. You have eight kids and then you decide yeah, adoption, a few more. That sounds, that sounds great. How did (laughs) adoption enter the picture for your family? And how did it unfold? And how did you decide that that's the right thing to take on knowing that it was a lot to take on and it was going to impact everybody? Hey everyone, wanted to jump in real quick and thank one of our show sponsors, Peanut. This is the app that will help you meet like-minded moms and moms-to-be. We move around a lot, and I know personally how hard it is to find your people, right? And so sometimes you need an app to do that. Peanut provides a safe space for mothers, expectant mothers, and those trying to conceive, a place to build friendships, ask questions, and find support. Whether this is your first baby, or you're a new mom, or you're pregnant with your fourth, like I am. Sometimes you just need a little extra camaraderie in the stage of life that you're in. So if you're looking to find somebody who's in a similar stage of life like you are, Peanut provides access to that community of women who are there to listen, share information, and offer valuable advice. There's so many unknowns with motherhood and with pregnancy and postpartum. Sometimes you got to just ask the hard questions and get some honest, vulnerable responses. And that's what I really love about the peanut app. It is free to download. It is so easy to use. And what I really love is there's all kinds of places to ask questions. There's forums and you can find groups that are relevant to your interests It is such a fantastic, fantastic app, and I would love for you to give it a try. So you can download the app for free today by heading to peanut.app.link slash extraordinary or find it in your app store. That's Peanut. (laughs) Enjoy getting to know a few moms in your area today.
1: Yes. Well, when our youngest daughter was about three, I remember having this strong sense that... God was going to do something new in our lives, and I didn't know what it was. I actually thought probably I was going to go back to graduate school, oh, and um, I, I just really thought that that something was about to shift for us, and then we got a phone call from some of our best friends calling to tell us that they had decided to adopt two little boys from Ethiopia. And honestly, it was like something sort of split open in my heart. And I, you know, adoption had been something definitely that we were uh, somewhat familiar with. You know, when we were undergraduates, my background is mental health and we had worked in a group home for children. And and I'd always had such a heart for children. And I thought, oh, you know, in this idealistic way, I thought, oh, it would be really neat to be a foster parent or it would be really neat to adopt. But we had never pursued it. And our friends, you know, just laid this before us and we were able to ask questions. And I remember thinking, you know, I am already home full time being a mom, educating my kids and I love it. And it's something I'm pretty good at. And I could do this. We could do this for more children. We have something really beautiful, and we could open that up and bring more children in. So we began to pray about it and talk about it and think about it. And in that praying process, we started sponsoring a little girl at an orphanage for children living with HIV. And she just became someone that we prayed for and thought about. Her picture was on our refrigerator. And we decided then, after a little bit, to adopt two little boys and we thought that would be perfect because they would be younger than our youngest daughter and actually girls were preferred over boys in adoption um, from Ethiopia and so we thought well we have both we're happy to have boys so that's what led us to adopt two little boys and in that process our friends went to Ethiopia to get their children and they went to visit this little girl that we were sponsoring and they were truly captivated by her. I mean, she's beautiful. She had dimples. She was high energy. And they were a little bit surprised when the um, nurse at the orphanage said, you know, we're really hoping your friends are going to adopt her. And there was no plan. We had We didn't even know it was possible to adopt a little girl with HIV, and we were already well into our process with our two, but I will tell you, God broke our hearts for her. I mean, like, it was a deep, deep experience of grief for her, Mm -hmm. and we felt compelled that we could not leave her in Ethiopia as a child with no mother, who was ill and who had been abused and Well, we just felt so compelled. And so we actually added her to our adoption process and we ended up at that time adopting three unrelated children through two different agencies simultaneously, which is pretty much unheard of. Yeah. And then when we went to Ethiopia, which I'm happy to share that with you, but when we went, we met another little girl and we returned a year later to bring her home. So we added four children to our family in a period of about 16 or 17 months. Woo wee.
0: Okay, so yeah. I bet you get the the comment a lot, I could never do that. We're a military family, Lisa, and I get all the time, "Oh, I we could never do that." And then here <laughs> you are adopting 4 children and then you already have your 8. I could never do that. What would you say to the people that think they could never do fill in the blank whatever it is mm-hmm. well i couldn't do it either that's the
1: truth <laughs> of it i could never yeah. have done it without mm-hmm. the grace of god without my community around me without a supportive husband it was extremely hard i'll be honest and mm-hmm. you know we we brought home children who had experienced terrible adversity and trauma and neglect and Suffering a lot of suffering, especially our older two. So our children at the ages that they came home, our oldest was 10. And then our next was five and a half. And then our boys were two. And our youngest was only about five months. So, you know, they had experienced great loss in their lives and it deeply affected them and so when we brought them into our family our whole family was changed we were really plunged into the most challenging season of our entire lives for sure
0: yeah so how did you do it so what just how did you do it Mm. well Wow. That is such a big question. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. We, we,
1: we stumbled and struggled a lot. And you know, I'll be honest at first, we really did not want people to know how difficult things were in our home. You know, I had been writing, I'd started blogging in 2006 at one thankful mom, actually one dot com, And then we brought our kids home in 2007 and pretty quickly, things were spinning out of control and we thought i i remember thinking of course things are going to be hard of course but i thought that if i just did everything right yeah and if we met their needs and we kept them safe and we fed them and loved them that they would settle in and everything would be okay you know yeah. and i think i I did not anticipate or understand that some of these struggles, some of these wounds are lifelong for our children, and they don't just go away. They don't, uh, you know, feeding a child regularly for a year after they've been starved early in their life will not take away their sense of deprivation about food. These are long, lifelong things that require a lot of healing. So we sought a lot of help, but it Mm -hmm. took us a little while because again, I think I had this idealism. I had been, we had been parents for 20 years when we brought our kids home and we had learned a lot in preparation and we really thought, okay, we can do this, but um, we needed help. So we found therapists, we found uh, adoption specialists, physicians, occupational therapists, tutors.
0: So many people had to join our team to really help our family stay together. That is so beautiful. And I love how you're talking about how realizing like you could not do it alone. Even all Mm -hmm. the love in the world cannot heal all these wounds. It takes I, th- I think sometimes as a mom, being equipped for your kids means being the resource to find other resources for our kids. And sometimes yes. we're not that person. We have to accept that. So how did you evolve in letting other people see what life was truly like, accepting that it was, it was messy and just accepting the imperfection? How did you get there?
1: Well, I think at first I let some close friends in because it was so dramatic and so hard. And we actually needed help for our other children. Uh, Almost immediately, one of my friends took over homeschooling my daughter, who at that time I believe was nine. Mm -hmm. And she just said, I'll do it. I'll, I will take over for you. And that almost brings me to tears right
0: now. Get her on the podcast. That is extraordinary. Wow. (laughs)
1: You know, yeah, I needed her help so much and I never would have asked her, will you homeschool my daughter? Mm -hmm. And she actually homeschooled my daughter for quite a long time. And that was a huge, huge gift. I had another dear friend who offered to take my daughter who was the most challenging. And at that point, We had just well, okay, probably one of the biggest changes. We had to use school for the Mm. very first time. School entered our lives and we put our two adopted daughters into a private Christian school. Mm. And so this friend of mine, which I will say was a very it was a big shift for me and it was actually painful. Not because I didn't trust the school to give my kids a fabulous education, but because being a homeschooling family was not about just education. It was the way we lived our life. It was our whole family culture, you know? And so that was a real loss to say, okay, we can't be this. We can't do this the way we have. And we're going to bring school into our family. So anyhow, the girls started going to school. And one of my dear friends committed to picking my daughter up every Wednesday after school and she would take Kelkidan home and she would feed her a big snack and help her with her homework and Kelkidan would help her cook dinner and she would stay for dinner. And then my friend would bring her home in the evening. And that just became an anchor in our week for the other children in particular, because they knew that on Wednesdays, they would, we would have a dinner that would be Relatively calm mm. because food deprivation was such a big problem for my daughter. So, dinner time was very difficult, and that they would have access to us on Wednesdays. So, it was just that regular break, things that we could count on were so, so important for us during that time. And the other thing that happened was I had been writing really encouraging people about adoption and the needs of the children. And I finally opened up a little bit on my blog about the struggles we were having. And I began writing about that. And immediately people started responding and saying, I didn't know anybody else was struggling like we are. Thank you for sharing. And then I just started sharing everything I was learning from the therapist we were going to, from the books I was reading. And that really was when my writing and my blog and speaking just launched because people needed an honest voice and also someone who could share the things that were working or the things that might work. And that, I think that was a big, big transition for us right there. And I think that was probably around
0: 2008. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just shows you what a disservice you're doing to the world around you when you are pretending to be a certain way, even if you think that's the way you're supposed to be right by keeping these challenges just within your own walls and, and keeping that a silent struggle, everyone else is also feeling like, well, that's how we do it. We we just silently <laughs> struggle and we and and I'm the only one. And so that validation, oh my gosh, can go so far. And the other thing, golly, you have good friends. And it just really reiterates to me, you can't underestimate the gifts that you have that can really bring so much relief and so many blessings to other families. And I mean, who would think simply picking a child up from school and, you know, creating an environment where they can eat safely you know, and, and, and help mm-hmm. with dinner. And then in return, gosh, the gift that you were given to have that, that peaceful dinner, but right. you kind of have to think outside right. the box when you want to say, well, what can I do? You know, usually you think the standard, you know, few, few things on a list of like, what can I do? And oftentimes you may not have even known what you needed, but I think it's that list of oh, spirit.
1: Yeah. Right. Because when you're in the crisis, you are too exhausted to yeah, figure it out yourself. Sure, sure. And one thing I've learned over the years as moms helping other moms, we need to offer something that is, uh, something that is not a huge drain to us, preferably something that's a little bit life-giving for us. So my friend who took over homeschooling my daughter at that point, she had one daughter left at home that she was homeschooling and and her daughter and my daughter were best friends and both of our girls were extreme extroverts. So by adding (laughs) my daughter, Anna Rose into their school life, it actually brought my friend some joy and relief, you know, and, um, right now I have a friend who's really struggling with a teen son and I'm like hey bring him here anytime because the struggles you have will not happen at my house right because he he doesn't have those issues with me and I don't mind having him here I have two teenage boys here all the time anyhow so or another time there was a young mom in a small group I was in and she really needed help she was uh dealing with some postpartum depression and I was working so much and my kids need so much but the one thing I could easily do was her laundry. And so I wasn't the one in the group offering to drop off dinner because that felt really burdensome to me. But I actually like doing laundry. I love bringing order out of chaos. And so and my laundry is right off my kitchen. So doing her laundry and folding all those adorable baby clothes actually was a joy for me, you know. So I think we have to think about when we're helping one another, what is something I can do that I can actually sustain? Because it's not Going to completely deplete me. Mm.
0: That is such wise counsel. I think we do feel so pressured when those meal lists are going around at church or you know the PTA sign-up comes out and you feel so obligated to send in the homemade cupcakes. And but if it's not your thing, let somebody else fill that role. Like we think we're the only one that can do it, and that's simply not true. But there are things that you can do that would still, you know, offer such a service. But if it's part of something that brings you joy too, win, win. <laughs> that's, that's genius. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know,
1: like I tell people, if you want to help a family, at, you know, sign their kid up for soccer with your kid and you do all the driving. Sure. And that will be the hugest blessing. And it won't really be much harder for you. No. And it's fun know? for your child. Yes. Yeah. So we just have to be a little creative. But we need to. We do need to serve and love one another to the best of our ability. There are seasons when you cannot, when you have to be the receiver. I mean, for years, there was a long stretch where I could not have even thought about serving someone else because we were struggling so much. But that has changed, and now I have a little. I have more capacity. So we just. I think one thing uh, we can ask ourselves. I learned this from Suzanne Stabile. I don't know if you know she is, but she's an Enneagram teacher. But she says. begins every morning by asking what is mine to do just sit with that that's a good one
0: yeah but our kids could ask themselves that too right like that could Mm -hmm. start really Mm -hmm. young like what is my role what is mine to do today I love that right okay Mm -hmm. Lisa you're an author this is so cool so tell me about your Mm -hmm. book the connected parent
1: Well, in super brief, when we were on our big journey trying to find help, I uh, was introduced to a woman named Dr. Karen Purvis. She was a um, research developmental psychologist at Texas Christian University, and she had written a book called The Connected Child. She co-authored it with uh, Dr. David Cross. And... What she was studying and reading about was children who had experienced some kind of trauma and um, how to best parent them to build attachment, and trust and connection. And when I read her book, it really gave me a whole new way of looking at my children's needs and how I could meet them. And I ended up having the incredible opportunity to meet her in person, to do some writing for an organization she was part of, and then to start speaking and traveling with them. And I uh, I remember when I was reading all the books, when we were in such deep struggles with our daughter, Dun, and I and also by then we were working with great therapists, but I kept thinking to myself. None of these people, as incredible, as much as a gift they are to me and to the adoption community, they are not living my life. They can't, some of the things that they thought I would be able to do, I simply couldn't do because of the level of challenge and just so many needs, you know, so many needs, so little mom, right? There's only Mm -hmm. one of me. Mm -hmm. And so um, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be incredible to have a book that combined my real-life experiences with the wisdom and the science and all the knowledge and experience of Dr. Karen Purvis. And I ended up presenting this idea to her, and we wrote a book together. So, yes, it's called The Connected Parent Real-Life Strategies for Building Trust and Attachment.
0: Oh, that is so great, because I feel like there's so many parenting books out there. And while books like hers are so incredible and impactful and everything like that. It's almost like you need people to come alongside you to kind of just like summarize <laughs> like everything. You yes. got to kind of give you like the shortcuts to these things, right? And and then you Absolutely. can always you can always dig deeper on the things that really resonate with you and whatnot. But I love what you're talking about. And so in in doing that work with her in implementing it in your family I assume that it also helped your biological children. This attachment parenting you're talking about, building trust with your kids, especially teenagers and and keeping those positive relationships. What is something actionable that you do with your kids to really promote that way of, of interacting and building relationships with your kids?
1: Well, the overarching thing that I feel I'm doing every single day with my teens and young adults is trying to keep the relationship and the connection at the center of every interaction. So if my child needs correction, I want to start by making sure we have connection first. So we wow. connect before we correct. And we, I use tools and, you know, with children who've experienced any kind of adversity and I will say in my opinion that all children who are adopted or in foster care, of course, have experienced some adversity because even adopted children adopted as newborns have experienced the prenatal uh, trauma that their mother may have experienced. They've experienced the loss of their very first parent. And so there's, you know, adoption begins with loss and we have to be aware of that. So. You know, children like mine, it's kind of obvious. 10 years in an orphanage is significant trauma. But even my littlest guy, who was in the orphanage such a short time, that's still a trauma. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these children who've experienced adversity, that could be early medical. Trauma, like a baby who has to have procedures, it can be the obvious abuse, neglect. It could be a baby born during a family's time of extreme stress, maybe a divorce or a loss in the family, you know, all kinds of things can create this distress for children. And so their brains are impacted by that distress and the way their brains develop develop and the neural pathways that are laid down in their little brains are different from a child who does not experience that. And fortunately their brains can heal. But the first thing we have to do to help begin healing them is to disarm their fear response, to bring their fear down, to calm their brains and their bodies. And we do that through connection and through there are basically three three basic principles of empowering which is meeting their physical needs making sure that those needs are met then connecting where we put the relationship first and then last lastly correcting Mm -hmm. where by disarming the fear we can actually teach them when children are in a fear state of any kind their brains they cannot really learn their prefrontal cortex their upper brain the thinking brain is pretty much offline and they're functioning in a lower part of their brain which is not able to process words as well so there's there's so much like I could go on and on forever about this but the the essential part is focusing on the relationship and connection first
0: yeah and we talk a lot on this podcast about how a lot of times the behaviors you're seeing from your kids it's not actually about what's what they're saying it's about. It's not about what seat they're sitting in in the car. It's not about, you know, not wanting to go to school in general. Usually there's something right. underneath, right? And so then for kids with trauma, legit, really deep seated trauma where they have to really work hard to rewire everything, that is just, you know, a tenfold thing. But even for our kids that, you know, have an experience that level of trauma. Every every child is struggling to make sense of the world and to act in accordance to what they know to be true. And then sometimes it comes out in really ugly, hard ways. And they have to learn how to how to move through the world differently in a way that's success you know, helps them to be successful. Oh. I love this so much. This is so powerful. And so you would say this book is not just for um, adoptive families or anything like that, or or is it?
1: Well, I think adoptive and foster parents will definitely recognize themselves in here a whole lot. But okay. I will say that once we learned trust-based relational intervention, which is trust-based parenting. Once we learned that, I remember my husband and I looking at each other and thinking, wow, we wish we'd parented all of our children this way. We really do. You know, we parented from a more traditional model with our older kids with, you know, consequences and punishment. And, you know, I just think there is a better way. It is investment parenting. It is not easy. It takes a lot. But I do think those connections – I think when we were able to shift to that mindset, it has built really beautiful relationships with all of our kids, adult kids. We're still working on things with our kids who had a harder start in life for sure. Yeah. But um, I would never go back to oh. the way we parented before. So even someone who is not, in that trauma world would definitely benefit from the tools and tips i mean there are so many practical strategies like learning how to use scripts which we didn't even have time to talk about but um, combating fear teaching respect recognizing your child's sensory needs sensory is huge for most kids so yes there are many many things that parents will benefit from with the book
0: i love it Lisa, you are so extraordinary. And I think what really makes you so extraordinary is your willingness to accept uncertainty, challenges, and to have evolved into a place where there's not shame that accompanies those things, right? It's just the acknowledgement that life is hard. There is change. There is uncertainty. There's opportunities that we choose. And then there's opportunities like we talked about that we don't. But like, what can we, what can we do with that? What can we learn to make the most of it? And it's not going to be a perfect science. But there's always love rooted in all of it. I love it.
1: And I think we can count on God being with us. You know, it, it may not be easy. It may be terribly, terribly hard. Families go through difficult, painful things. But no matter what we're walking through, God is with us in the darkest deepest messiest parts and we can we can trust that and I think his strength will sustain us through anything and our family's been through some really really hard things so I can say that with confidence.
0: Yeah. Lisa, where can people find you online when they definitely want to learn more from you? <laughs>
1: well my website is one thankful mom.com and then on facebook i'm one thankful mom on instagram i'm also one thankful mom uh i also have a podcast that's a little more it's a it's called the adoption connection so it's more focused on adoption and foster care and
0: i think those are the main ways and my book fabulous that is the connected parent everything will be linked at extraordinary moms podcast.com lisa i always ask my guests one final question and it's this what would you tell your pre-motherhood self?
1: Oh, wow. Pre-motherhood.
0: That was so long
1: ago. Did I mention my oldest is 33? 33, 33 so, years okay, ago, thinking, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I have kids who are grown-ups. Um, I would say that being a mother will not be anything probably like you imagine. And there will be harder things than you can anticipate, but it will be the most rewarding glorious, beautiful thing. I mean, I look at my family and I think just, you know, thanks be to God. It's, they're, they're beautiful people. And I'm so, so thankful that I get to be their mom.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love it. Lisa, this has been such a treat this morning. Thank you so much for showing up for your 12 kids. Those are 12 lucky kids there. That was, oh man, I would love to be in your family. I love it. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a joy. Absolutely. All the best to you and your family.
1: Thank you so much. You too.
0: I hope you enjoyed getting to know Lisa as much as I did. Of course, the air is turning on right now, but guys, I'm in Southern California and it's hot, so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> Lisa is so extraordinary. Mom of 12, adoptive mom, bio mom, helping her kids to transition and welcome in these, these new family members. Wow, that is extraordinary. And then to author a book on top of all that. How cool is that? I encourage you to pick up Lisa's book. It's linked over at ExtraordinaryMomsPodcast.com if you'd like to pick up a book to build connection with your kids and help kids through trauma. So, so incredible. Uh, I cannot recommend it enough. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at Jessica 3 or on Facebook at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm so grateful that you tune in every week, and I hope that you will continue to do so. Subscribe, and if you really enjoy the show, tell your friends. Spread the word on social media, and be sure to tag me so that I can thank you. Also, if you know any extraordinary moms who have extraordinary motherhood journeys, have overcome uh, extraordinary challenges, and have learned extraordinary lessons. These are my kind of people. I don't want to just have experts on the show teaching us how to do things in parenting. I get so much out of hearing motherhood journeys that are unique from my own and even ones that are similar that I can find camaraderie in having that diversity of moms on the show is what it is all about. So if you have anybody that you can recommend to me, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram and put me in touch with them so that I can find some new, incredible motherhood guests. All right, everybody, we will see you next week for another episode with another extraordinary mom. Bye.